Here in this chapter, we see a series of acts of revenge and vengeance. So I'll be talking about these matters, and I will be addressing what happens regarding these matters when there is a breakdown in civil government. Here in Judges 15. So why don't we stand for the reading of God's word? We're just going to read the first three verses. We're, of course, dealing with the narrative regarding Samson, and this is our third chapter with Samson. And verse 1 says, After a while, in the time of wheat harvest, it happened that Samson visited his wife with the young goat. And he said, Let me go into my wife, into her room. But her father would not permit him to go in. Her father said, I really thought that you thoroughly hated her, therefore I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister better than she? Please take her instead. And Samson said to them, This time I shall be blameless regarding the Philistines if I harm them. May God bless the reading of his word. Uh, The title of my sermon this morning is Revenge and the Collapse of Civil Government. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you and praise you for this time that we have in your word. And we ask that you would use it for good in our hearts and minds. Help me to set forth that which you've given me to declare. Use it in all the hearts and minds of the hearers, O God. Lord, we thank you that you have preserved your scriptures down through the ages. So we can know your ways and thoughts and live in obedience to you. Be glorified here, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Could be seated. So here in chapter 1, chapter 15 and verse 1, it begins by saying, After a while in the time of wheat harvest, it happened that Samson visited his wife with a young goat. So here we see this recurring theme in the book of Judges about young goats. And um, young goat is good meat. Me and my family raised goats this last year. First time we did so, and we ate goat meat, and we think well of it. It's better than beef, better than cow beef. It's an excellent meat. So you might be thinking, goat? Goat is good. So you see them using goat again and again. So... It says that Samson is going to visit his wife because, as you may recall, his marriage got off to a rocky start. She manipulated him into giving her the answer to the riddle he had given to his young men, known as his companions, for his wedding. These were all Philistines. Samson was ticked for her doing that. He killed 30 Philistines, and instead of returning to his wife, it says he went back to his father and mother's house. May you remember that? Verse 19 of chapter 14. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily, and he went down to Ashkelon and killed 30 of their men, took their apparel, and gave the changes of clothing to those who explained the riddle. So his anger was aroused, and he went back up to his father's house. And Samson's wife was given to his companion, who had been his best man. So that's the situation we're at right now. Samson decides to now go visit his wife. But when Samson gets there, and we have no idea how long it's been. We don't know if it's been a week. We don't know if it's been a month. We don't know if it's been six months. We don't know how long he's been gone. 
But when he gets there, Samson is not allowed into her room because the woman's father gave her to one of his companions, actually to the guy who stood up in his wedding as his best man. Verse 2 says, her father said, I really thought you thoroughly hated her, therefore I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister better than she? Please take her instead. So his wife has been given to another, but the father offers the better-looking younger sister to Samson to make up for it. But Samson wanted nothing to do with her. And now he feels justified to do further harm to the Philistines. Look at verse 3. And Samson said to them, This time I shall be blameless regarding the Philistines if I harm them. He feels incredibly justified at this point to harm the Philistines. Of course, the Lord's using all this behavior, Samson's bad behavior. I've talked about how sometimes God has to reach down at the bottom of the barrel. He works with mere men. And that was the case with Samson. A lot of bad behavior, as we've talked about already. So this time he feels more justified in what he's going to do to them. And one thing I wanted to inject here. So are you listening? One thing I wanted to inject here. Did you notice there is no repentance mentioned in this narrative about Samson? Have you caught on to that? I mean, we're into the third chapter. It's never been mentioned yet. When the Samson narrative begins back in chapter 13, you may recall it says that, again, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. And then it just starts talking about Samson. Nothing about repentance. The other narratives, repentance is involved. Remember? Repentance is involved. So you kind of notice that, especially when you see how muddy all this is regarding Samson compared to the other situations. Very muddy. Dealing with a guy who is not submitted to the Lord. And he is, however, being used of God for God's purposes regarding his people Israel and bringing them out from underneath the oppression of the Philistines. So I just wanted to note that. Repentance is massively important. And we must call ourselves to repentance. We must call our brothers and sisters to repentance. We must call this nation to repentance. I cannot speak about that enough. So look what Samson decides to do to the Philistines for his wife being taken from him by a Philistine. It says in verses 4 and 5, then Samson went and caught 300 foxes and he took torches, turned the foxes tail to tail, and put a torch between each pair of tails. When he had set the torches on fire, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and burned up both the shocks and the standing grain, as well as the vineyards and olive groves. He destroys their means of sustenance. You understand they couldn't just go down to the local Piggly Wiggly and buy some more food. They couldn't just hit Walmart and grab some more vittles, right? This is a big deal. He's destroyed their means of sustenance. So Samson gets revenge, unleashed his vengeance, and gets back at the Philistines. But now 
as our narrative continues, we'll see that the Philistines are wanting to get back at him. Verse 6. Then the Philistines said, Who has done this? And they answered, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. So the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. So the Philistines decide to do their own little act of revenge and burn to death Samson's father-in-law and wife. Kill them. And now, Samson is going to get back at the Philistines again. Look at verse 7. Samson said to them, Since you would do a thing like this, I will surely take revenge on you. And after that, I will cease. So he attacked them hip and thigh with a great slaughter. He wants revenge. He attacks them. Hip and thigh is an idiom of sorts. It means viciously. He viciously attacks them. Attacks the Philistines. Hip and thigh with a great slaughter. Then he went down and dwelt in the cleft of the rock of Elam. So he gets his revenge, his vengeance, and it's still not over because the Philistines were now going to get back at Samson. Do you see a cycle here? Do you see a vicious cycle here? And this conflict has now reached national proportions. Look at verses 9 and 10. Now the Philistines went up and camped in Judah and deployed themselves against Lehi. And the men of Judah said, Why have you come up against us? So they answered, We have come up to arrest Samson to do to him as he has done to us. To do to him as he has done to us. We see this vicious cycle of revenge. Acts of revenge going back and forth. In our narrative, understand this matter of revenge and vengeance is what happens between people when civil government is weak or non-existent or is corrupt or abusive, dispensing immorality and injustice. Huge point to understand. I'll repeat it to you. This matter of revenge and vengeance is what happens between people when civil government is weak or non-existent or is corrupt or abusive, dispensing immorality and injustice. You do understand that the Lord established civil government. Many proofs are available for this assertion, but let me be brief and just name a few. We see that God established civil government with Moses in Exodus 18, where the Lord has Moses place rulers over men in groups of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. We see that God has established civil government with the giving of his law to men, some of which was to be adjudicated by the rulers. We see it with the Lord raising up and taking down civil rulers. We see the scripture state in Daniel 4.17 that the Most High rules over the kingdoms of men and gives it to whomever he will. We see it explicitly declared that God has established civil government in Romans 13. And that in that passage, the magistrate is declared to be the minister of God. 
All this points to the fact that God established civil government. It is a divine institution. It is one of the four great governments established by God. The three great governments are family government, church government, and civil government. They produce within the individual the fourth great government, which is self-government. God established civil government. It's a divine institution. It is one of the four great governments established by God. And when civil government is weak or non-existent or is corrupt or abusive, dispensing immorality and injustice, it results in revenge and vengeance being taken into the hands of self-government and family government. They try to fill the void that has been left by the messed up or non-existent civil realm. Now, it's interesting to note what Webster has to say regarding revenge and vengeance. He defines the difference between revenge and vengeance. In his 1828 dictionary, it says revenge. It's a verb. And he says, number one, to inflict pain or injury in return for an injury received. Haven't we been seeing that in our narrative? But then he notes the change that is taking place regarding the word vengeance and the word revenge. He notes that a transition is taking place back then at that time to what we now have as our current view of revenge and vengeance as it's defined. He says this in his 1828, he says in parentheses, in brackets, he says, note, this word, talking about revenge, and avenge were formerly used as synonymous. And it is so used in the common version of the scripture and applied to the supreme being, O Lord, revenge me of my persecutors, Jeremiah 15, 15. So he's pointing out they used to be used synonymously, revenge and avenge, or vengeance. But now they're taking on distinct, different definitions, denotations. He goes on and says, in consequence of a distinction between avenge and revenge, which modern usage has introduced, the application of this word to the supreme being appears extremely harsh, irreverent, and offensive. Revenge is now used in an ill sense for the infliction of pain maliciously or illegally, avenge for inflicting just punishment. He's noting the change. Revenge is now immoral, illegal taking of getting back at someone, whereas vengeance or avenging is just punishment. Keep that in mind. Number two, regarding his definition, number two, under his definition of revenge, he says, according to modern usage, to inflict pain deliberately and maliciously, contrary to the laws of justice and humanity, in return for injury, pain, or evil received, to wreak vengeance spitefully on one who injures or offends. And number three, he defines it as to vindicate by punishment of an enemy. Now, when you look at the word vengeance in the 1828 Webster's Dictionary, it says the infliction of pain on another in return for an injury or offense. Such infliction, when it proceeds from malice or more resentment and is not necessary for the purposes of justice, and is not necessary for the purposes of justice, is revenge and a most heinous crime. 
He goes on and says, when such infliction proceeds from a mere love of justice and the necessity of punishing offenders for the support of the laws, it is vengeance and it is warrantable and it is just. In this case, vengeance is a just retribution, recompense, or punishment. In this latter sense, the word is used in Scripture and frequently applied to the punishments inflicted by God on sinners. And then he quotes Deuteronomy 32, 35, and he quotes Nahum chapter 1. And you can add many other verses to it, Ezekiel 25, 14, and on down the line. So Webster notes this distinction between the words revenge and vengeance. And we would do well to discern between revenge and vengeance, as Webster has laid out here. Notice the difference between the two. Vengeance takes place when such infliction proceeds from a mere love of justice and the necessity of punishing offenders for the support of the laws. It is vengeance and it is warrantable and just. In this case, vengeance is a just retribution, recompense, or punishment. Whereas he says of revenge, according to modern usage, to inflict pain deliberately and maliciously, contrary to the laws of justice and humanity, in return for injury, pain, or evil received, to wreak vengeance spitefully. I'm one who injures or offends. As the rule of law continues to crumble and lawlessness increases, we must decide which of the two, revenge or vengeance. As Christians, revenge, never. When it comes to vengeance, as defined here by Webster, at times, yes you may have to see that come to pass. Now let me explain this to you. Let's continue on here. Revenge and vengeance being taken by individuals and families and groups becomes prevalent when civil government is weak or non-existent or is corrupt or abusive, dispensing immorality and injustice. History proves this to be true. I'm a student of history. History proves this to be true. As there are countless examples of eras and epochs where weak or corrupt civil government causes people to take matters of law into their own hands. It reaches such a point. We see it done by individuals, by families, by groups. And we seem to be heading into such an era and epoch once again here in the history of man in the West, here in America. We seem to be heading into such an era and epoch once again. The rule of law is crumbling in America and throughout the West. Evil has been declared to be good and good to be evil by the governments of men, and people will only abide that so long. If you think otherwise, if you want to sit in your little ivory theological tower... And think, and you want everything a little perfect. Man's history is not always perfect <laughs> by any means. People will only abide 
the lack of order that civil government brings. They'll only abide the perversions and corruptions of government so long. And then they will act. And they will need to do so under family government, under self-government. Christians, most of which are still living in their la-la land of indifference and and say we should just always obey the civil authorities, will soon realize how absurd their assertions are. The assertion is unbiblical, absolutely not true to scripture, and it is absurd to reason and to the nature of man and to history, this idea that we're always to obey. They've been able to get away with it because we've had a vestige of Christian influence still in our laws. But that is fast fading. And this is what we have seen in the book of Judges. Lawlessness. When civil government fails in its purpose and function, when it perverts its purpose and function, corrupts its God-given purpose and function, at some point, men will act to make up for or to correct that failure, that perversion, that corruption of civil authority. They will take matters into their own hands. The other governments will come in to fill the void that's lacking. The failure of duty by the civil government, the other governments will come in to help fill the void. And this is what we have been seeing in the book of Judges. That is the state of things here in the Samson narrative. And this is seen time and again during certain eras and epochs in the history of man. To one degree or another, I'm a student of history, and you will see this time and time again. You see this time and time again as you read history. Things get so bad, men must act. Remember last week I said when decentralized governments, the lesser civil authorities become corrupt, people look to a centralized power. And when the central power is corrupt, people look to decentralized power. And that process has already begun in America, and it is needed. People are looking to the states and county and local government to protect them from the lawlessness of the federal and even state governments. And as things get more lawless, people will be forced to think differently than they once thought about civil government matters and the dispensing of justice and the matter of law. And that'll go on until proper, just civil government is established in the land or reestablished in the land. Now, as Christians... We are not a revengeful people. Look at Romans chapter 12, verse 17. Turn with me there. The book of Romans. Chapter 12. And look what it says in verse 17. It says, repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. Repay no one evil for evil. We are not a vengeful people. We are certainly not out for revenge. Someone does evil to us and we do evil back to them? No, we do not. Look what it goes on to say in this passage. Verse 
18. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. He says if it is possible because it is not always possible. But as much lies within you, do the best you can to keep it that way. Verse 19. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you heap coals of fire on his head. You bring God's judgment on them. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In other words, don't return evil with evil. Return their evil with good. And I can do a whole sermon on that because men misinterpret what good is because of the fairy-like form of Christianity we have in America. They misinterpret what good is. In this passage, we see that we are not to be a revengeful, vengeful people. This passage is speaking to self-government, our position as individuals, how we are to act, what is our duty as individuals. Vengeance belongs to God. It says here, not us. And then in chapter 13, which begins immediately afterwards... The apostle moves us from self-government to the realm of civil government. Why? Because the Lord uses the civil authority for vengeance upon evildoers. That's why. That's their function. It's not to be the function of self-government to retribute justice. It's supposed to be the function of civil government. But when they fail in it, then we see individuals and we see family government filling the void. Let me continue here. The apostle moves us from self-government to the realm of civil government because the Lord uses a civil authority for vengeance upon evildoers. The Lord places his sword of justice in a lesser hand, namely the civil authority. The passage says in verse 4 of chapter 13 that, quote, he, the civil authority, is God's minister, unquote. Think of that. God places the responsibility of retributing justice, of avenging wrong, in the hands of civil government. They bear the sword. The sword is the symbol of the government's authority to punish evildoers. Verse 4 says, quote, He is God's minister and avenger. To execute wrath on him who practices evil. Unquote. The sword is the symbol of the government's authority to punish evildoers, to establish and to render justice. It is delegated authority given to them of God as a lesser hand, therefore, they have a duty to govern according to his rule. And our government has long left the constraints of his rule. They are lawless, vicious, evil men. Not only in America, but throughout the West. They have lost what is their God-given function and duty. So let us not confuse self-government and its duties regarding vengeance with civil government and its duties regarding vengeance. Let's not confuse the two. 
The civil government has a duty to punish evildoers. Many Christians take what their duty is as individuals, self-government, as we read at the end of chapter 12 there, and try to impose that thinking on their view of the civil government. I have seen Christians do this with homosex, for example. We are to love the homosexual is the cry of every Christian, which I long learned long ago, just means to be indifferent towards the homosexual and be indifferent towards all the filth that's being proliferated through our nation through the juggernaut of homosex. Just be indifferent to it. That's what they really mean by love. So they try to impose their duty as an individual on the state. We should not criminalize their behavior, just show love to them. And love really means be indifferent. That is the greatest virtue of the American church, or I should say of American Christianity, is indifference. But it is the duty of the civil authority to bear the sword, to retribute punishment to evildoers. So as Christian people, we have a dual duty. We have a duty to point the homosexual to Christ, right? To let him know he stands guilty before God, but he can be forgiven. He can find mercy through Jesus Christ and become a new creation in him. We have that duty to make him known to them. But we also have a duty to stand with the magistrates who understand that homosexual acts should be criminalized. In fact, we have a duty to demand that they uphold this matter and criminalize homosexual acts, as was done throughout Western civilization for well over 1,500 years. We have a dual duty in that regard. But many Christians confuse their one duty and impose it upon the civil authority and mess everything up. Revenge and vengeance being taken by individuals and families, groups, becomes prevalent when civil government is weak or non-existent or is corrupt or abusive, dispensing immorality and injustice. Individuals, self-government. Families, family government. Groups take matters into their own hands. Just read history. Precisely because good law, justice, and order are needed in society. The other governments move in to fill the void left by the failure of civil authority because good law, justice, and order are needed in society. Civil government provides that or is supposed to provide that. That is the duty of civil authority. Punish evildoers, reward the good, but when they fail, pervert, or corrupt their duty, men will step into the void. Men must. Because good law, justice, and order in society are part of the created order of God. It's part of us. It's needed. It's demanded. Men know it. But it must be done as Webster defines vengeance. Not as he defines revenge. Revenge he defines as, according to modern usage, to inflict pain deliberately and maliciously, contrary to the laws of justice and humanity. In return for injury, 
pain or evil received to wreak vengeance spitefully on one who injures or offends. That's revenge. Here's what he says of vengeance. When such infliction proceeds from a mere love of justice and the necessity of punishing offenders for the support of the laws, it is vengeance and is warrantable and just. In this case, vengeance is a just retribution, recompense, or punishment. Amen. Men have it within them. It is part of the created order of God to see order in society, to see good law, and to see justice. That's one of the most interesting things for me is the indifference I've seen from Christian people when they see injustice in the land. That should bother you. It's within us. It's part of the created order of God to have those things. And when they're not there, it should bother you and you should want to see them restored. When they're lacking those matters of justice, of good law, men act to restore them because they know they have a duty to protect their families. They do so in order to restore order. When civil government becomes decidedly weak, perverse, or corrupt, family government and self-government, along with church government, will come to the fore to fill in the void and restore order. When civil authority becomes lawless to a certain point, men must coalesce under family government and self-government and even church government to protect themselves and their families, and men are right to do so. And the history of man is full of such examples. And when things get that bad, where men have to take those matters into their hands, all the little we must always obey Christians are long gone. Their little slogans hold no water. The unbiblical idiocy of their slogans is realized by men. Men always come back to the law of God after their rebellion and the destruction and awful consequence of their rebellion is realized in society. Men always come back to the law of God. History proves it. It is inescapable. And you are living in the midst of such an epoch. When Christian men abandon the realm of civil government... Wicked men will fill the void and make their worldview, law, policy, and court opinion. And that's what's happened. While the churchmen of Christians have felt so spiritual about their non-involvement with political, civil government matters, they're the ones who've paved the way for the evil state of our nation. Because wicked men filled the void. And they have now made their worldview law, policy, and court opinion. And as you can see, the consequences of their worldview are devastating on society. Evil is relabeled as good, and good is relabeled as evil. John MacArthur last week said it's too late for America. That judgment is here. Isn't that obvious? Thank God he said it, because most churchmen won't even say that at this point. Thank God he said it. 
is too late for America. But the irony of John MacArthur saying that is the fact that it's precisely his form of Christianity that's brought us to this condition in America. For decades, John MacArthur has mocked Christians who are involved in civil government matters, who've tried to see law which will defend the preborn, for example, which will outlaw homosex and homosexual marriage. He mocks it all as mere moralizing. He has taught people for decades, don't waste your time with politics. Don't get involved in civil government. It's a distraction. He says it, almost all churchmen in America and the West say that. And it is precisely that form of Christianity that he espouses and the vast majority of churchmen espouse that has brought us to this point. He said we are to obey the government and allow the preborn to be murdered. He called those who interposed at the death camps there in California scoff laws. Yet when the state finally got to his church to close it down, suddenly we don't always have to obey. We stand by while murder is taking place because the state says the murder is legal, but we assert our right to meet for worship when the state says you can't meet. It's crazy. Stand by while murder is taking place because the state says the murder is legal, but assert your right to meet for worship when the state says you can't meet. It's precisely this form of Christianity that has brought us to this point. They say for decades now, I've heard them say it, we lost the culture war, the culture war is over. That is a lie. Understand this, the culture war is never over. Ever over. And if you think it's over and you act indifferent towards it, guess what? One day it walks up and knocks on your church door. Guess what? It walks up and knocks on your home door. Because you think you can be indifferent to the evil in the land. We must establish the age-old tradition of Christianity wherein the churchmen and the Christian go to the magistrates and inform them from the word of from the word and law of God, inform them from the law and word of God their God-given role, function, and limits for the office which they are seated in as magistrates. That has to happen. And we are seeing it begin to happen as God has brought his judgment, as John MacArthur properly recognizes. His judgment is upon us. Let's go back to our narrative here. You may recall in Judges, I'm almost done, in Judges chapter 15, verse 7, Samson said, since you would do a thing like this, you know, burn his father-in-law and wife to death, I will surely take revenge on you, and after that I will cease. Guess what, Samson? You didn't get to. (laughs) You didn't get to cease. Because it's a vicious cycle. When civil government has failed in its duties and responsibilities, and men begin to take those matters into their own hands, if there isn't a Christian influence there, this is often how things end up. 
just blood retribution back and forth again and again, and history proves it out. He would not be able to cease. That wouldn't be the case. As we go on in our narrative and see the revenge and vengeance is a cycle that continues. It only ends when lawful, proper government is restored. It can be even worse if a tyrant assumes authority because then rather than decentralizing random revenge and vengeance, you now have systematic evil via civil authority. Either of the two must be thrown off by lawful, proper, as revealed in Scripture, civil government. Samson could not cease. He did not cease. Revenge and retaliation feeds on itself. But back to our narrative as the vicious cycle continues. Things have reached national proportion, as we saw in verses 9 and 10. And let's continue in verse 11. Then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Edom and said to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines rule over us? What is this you have done to us? See, there is no repentance. Is there? They're fine with the Babylonians ruling over them, the Philistines ruling over them. Biden and the Democrats are really, they're fine with any tyrant, Pol Pot, you name it, whoever. They're good with anybody ruling over. That is the vast majority of people always. But some of us can't abide that. We still understand the importance of good rule, of the proper use of civil authority. These guys didn't care. Do you not know that the Philistines rule over us? What is this you have done to us? They're good with the leftists. (laughs) Ruling over them. And he said to them, as they did to me, so have I done to them. There you have it. But they said to him, we have come down to arrest you, that we may deliver you into the hand of the Philistines. Then Samson said to them, swear to me that you will not kill me yourselves. So they spoke to him, saying, No, but we will tie you securely and deliver you into their hand, but we will surely not kill you. And they bound him with two new ropes. They're the strongest new ropes. And brought him up from the rock. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting against him. Then the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became like flax that is burned with fire, and his bonds broke loose from his hands. He found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, reached out his hand and took it, and killed a thousand men with it. Then Samson said, With the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps. With the jawbone of a donkey, I have slain a thousand men. And so it was when he had finished speaking that he threw the jawbone from his hand and called that place Ramath Lehi. Then he became very thirsty. So he cried out to the Lord and said, You have given this great deliverance by the hand of your servant, and now shall I die of thirst and shall fall into the hand of the uncircumcised? So God split the hollow place that is in Lehi, and water came out, and he drank. And his spirit returned and he revived. Therefore he called its name En-Hakor, which is in Lehi to this day. And he judged Israel 20 years in the days of the Philistines. 
So where there were these areas where the Philistines seemed to have ruled stronger, and there were areas within Israel where Samson seemed to rule stronger. Many were still good. Again, the lack of repentance. Here we see no full score rallying to Samson like we did with the other deliverers, with the other judges, do we? There was a lack of repentance. There was a willingness to just be ruled by anyone, to conform to anybody's authority. Amongst these Israelites at this time, God's trying to get his people to wake up, to realize that they need to restore things as he set them in order, and they're still not getting it. And sadly, as we go into chapter 16, we'll see again the lowness of Samson, who the Lord has to work with at that time. And yet another failure by him, and yet at the end, a triumphant finish. By Samson. I hope this sermon was a blessing to you. There's lawlessness afoot to a massive degree, which I've only read of in books, that's going on right now in our country and in the countries of this world. We must draw close to him. We must understand his ways and thoughts. We must understand that his word speaks to all matters of life, including matters of civil government, of right and wrong, of law, of justice, of order in society. We need to read of these things. We need to understand them, and we need to teach others. If I told you what most churches are preaching about today, you would find it flummoxing. They are talking about some fruit fly floating around some plant while this massive juggernaut of a train is barreling down upon them and they don't have a clue. As the prophet said, they continue to say peace, peace to their people when there is no peace. Or continue to convince them that, ha ha, frivolity's fine. We will be taken out before that hits. There's a massive awakening coming. God's judgment is a great and terrible thing. It should sober you. It should break your heart. Read the book of Lamentations. Jeremiah, who preached about God's judgment for decades, and when it finally came, and he saw it for what it is, even though he knew it was just, he knew it was because of the sins and rebellion of the people, he was torn inside by what he saw. The rebellion of man is, is so crazy. The blithe obedience we see here is stunning, is it not? May we draw close to our Lord, close to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen. Well to your homes. Keep them strong. Keep your relationships there right. Let's stand up and we'll close in a prayer.
Father, we give thanks and we give praise to you for your goodness to us. I thank you, O Lord, that we can look at your scriptures and see things. Lord, that we can know your ways and your thoughts, that we can see the behaviors of man, that we can look at your word and know how to respond in situations. Lord, I just ask and pray that you would grant repentance to individuals, to families, to our nation, O God, even. Help us to be faithful to you, calling men to repentance. Calling out the rebellion that is everywhere and evident. Lord, our hearts break when we see all that is unfolding here. We understand why Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet, O God. And our hearts do weep. And Lord, we just ask and pray that we would draw close to you and be true to you in these days. Hallelujah. And may our example point others unto your Son, Jesus Christ. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.